welcome everyone to our third episode of Streaming Water Podcast, uh, the podcast where we discuss all things Colorado water and wastewater. I'm your host, Blair Corning. Uh, Streaming Water is co-sponsored by the Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association and the Colorado Wastewater Utility Council. Uh, Those are both two great organizations made up of members on the front lines of of water protection. Today on our show, we're going to talk about the process of building things uh, related to water structures, storage reservoirs, pipelines, treatment plants, uh, any of these other structures that are so important to keeping water and wastewater flowing. I've learned through my career that construction in, in water and wastewater is super important because you can't, you don't get a second chance to, you can't shut the system off and, and get a second shot at it. So everything's got to be done right and on budget because we're often talking millions of dollars in, in community uh, rates and fees that go into these projects. So today we have a great guest to, to discuss all that with. We have Clay Ron from HDR and he's on the front lines of, of delivering these projects. Clay, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you work, and, and a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Blair. I appreciate that and appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast today. You bet. Glad to have you. So yeah, uh, a little bit of my background. I grew up in Riverside, California. So I'm a California guy, Um, did a little bit of surfing out there growing up and enjoyed water sports. I uh, excelled at swimming and and water polo, so I played those growing up. Water polo is really big out there in California, so I definitely enjoyed that. I still do it. I still still swim. I don't play water polo anymore, but I, I still swim and enjoy the outdoors and avid triathlete. Got half Ironman coming up here later this year and, and a cool. full Ironman and in May of next year, hopefully, if, if, uh, if they happen. Yeah, that's some of my hobbies. And I decided um, when I was got accepted to college, I decided I wanted to go out of state for college and I went to Penn State University in Pennsylvania. So um, oh. the, the, the full other side of the country, 3,000 miles away. <laughs> I wanted an adventure and I wanted to see snow. <laughs> so, oh, and it was really farther... wanted to get away, huh? You can't get much further <laughs> than that. No, I can't. And it's so funny. My, bro- my brother went to Purdue University and Penn State was farther away than Purdue. And I'm pretty sure I based on almost that entire decision on the fact that it was farther away than my brother. <laughs> so a major life decision uh, built upon that. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, went to Penn State. I studied engineering there, did uh, civil engineering with an emphasis on environmental engineering and water and wastewater treatment. Got out of school, and I've worked for a few different firms in my career. But when I got out of school, I went to into something completely different than water and wastewater. I did uh, welding actually i worked for a company called lincoln electric big oh. welding manufacturer yeah are you, are you familiar with lincoln blair you, no no but i'm familiar with welding yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'd imagine you got a lot of welding all over your plant i, I guarantee it <laughs> i did that for about five years and decided i wanted to get back into engineering what i studied at school and so i left lincoln it was a great company great experience um, met some great people there and learned learned a lot about sales and and how business works and, and interaction with people. So got into engineering and I've guess I've been in engineering now for about 15 years. I've been in consulting the in, the entire time. 
and my, my expertise is mainly with water and wastewater treatment. With that, um, I've had, I think I'm on my fifth now, um, field experience. So I've gotten, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. I've gotten to be out in the field as a resident engineer and um, been able to, uh, I don't know, further my engineering skills and, and knowledge on, on being in the field and actually seeing the designs that we prepare come to life. Yeah, it is amazing the, the steps to get a project from conception to delivery. It always uh, still amazes me how many people and how many how much money and, and how much uh, detail is involved in all that. And I know being the resident engineer and construction inspection is a huge part of that because if something goes wrong in the build, you feel that for the rest of the lifespan of that, that structure. So That is absolutely right. And it, what's amazing about it is the fact that there are so many different expertises that have to go into executing these projects. Yeah. There's it, every branch of science and engineering, uh, maybe not nuclear engineering, <laughs> but I think almost every other branch of engineering is involved in these projects. Um, and it's, it's incredibly complex. It takes an amazing amount of expertise to to put these together, to, to put these water and wastewater treatment plants together. And so, yeah, I'm with you. Clay, uh, where are you working at now? Uh, you give us a little bit about your your history. Where, where are you currently working? Uh, yeah, Blair, I work at HDR Engineering. It's a company that's about 100 years old. And for those of you that don't know, it's just got a, a wonderful storied history. Uh, one of our claims to fame is we designed the Hoover dam bypass bridge get online and take a look at it. it's a beautiful bridge that uh, bypasses the hoover dam as a result of um, protecting the dam making sure that it stays safe so traffic goes over the bridge now the company is worldwide about 10,500 employees uh, we're all over the united states i work out of the denver office and we're headquartered in omaha and it's just it's a wonderful place to work i just have such a, a great supportive team you know, our, our jobs are complicated and it makes a huge difference, it makes it much more enjoyable when you can come in and work with very smart, very kind people to get the job done. It's just been a wonderful place to work. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the, the people you work with and the, the company philosophy uh, has a lot to do with, you know, making making your job fun or, or making your job not fun. So I'm glad you're at a, I'm glad you're at a place you enjoy it with people that are, are fun to work with. Let's talk a little bit about about the, your role as a, a resident engineer on on large construction projects. What's what's a resident engineer do? What's their their function in the field? Yeah, the, a resident engineer in my mind is three things. One, we are, and I think this is the most important. We are, or should be, the hub of communications. I want the owner, the contractor and the engineer, my own company, I want all three of those groups to feel fully comfortable coming to me with questions, knowing that I can find the answers for them or that I will know the answers. I believe that the success of any of these projects um, is rooted in how well the people and the teams communicate with one another. If you have poor communication, 
you are going to have a project that is doomed. And I've seen that. I have never seen a project fully fail, but I've seen projects get into ruts, get into uh, bad areas, um, for lack of a better term, and it is almost invariably uh, rooted in miscommunication. Secondly, I'm, I'm out here witnessing the design come to life. And while I'm doing that, I, I'm the eyewitness, I'm one of the eyewitnesses of the design coming to life. And that needs to be recorded. So I view the role as being a record-keeping role as well. Thirdly, is, is the role of inspector so, or the role of observer, depending on what, what kind of contract you have. But um, I, I am observing what is going on and I'm trying to do it through the eyes of the owner. The owner is going to live with whatever we're building for decades, likely. And it is so important that it is built with the design intent in mind. That's what the owner is expecting to get. And so it's my responsibility to make sure that what is being built is the overall design intent. You work for your firm, right? HDR. You also work for the owner. You also are, are you know, the construction company, the contractors out there. Do you ever, yeah. do you ever have a struggle over having too many, uh, too many masters, I guess? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. And yes, that is a struggle sometimes because I do view myself as providing customer service for the contractor as well. You know, I, 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 I view them as a client and right. you know, there are, there are times when they're, when, when I, when I do need to talk to them about the design intent and maybe doing something differently than what they are doing. But uh, most of the time I want to make sure that the, that all three of those people, the including the contractor, but also the my own team as the engineer and the owner, uh, feel that they're getting good customer service from me, and yeah, I, I feel pulled in a lot of different directions. Uh, sometimes someone will will vent to me about something, and I need to go and talk to the other. Uh, to the other entity that they're venting about. And so I'll take their, their, their vented words and then translate them into something a bit more diplomatic. That, that happens all the time. Yeah. And, and that's just a, a part that you play, but I enjoy that. I, I enjoy the people interaction. I enjoy getting out there and, uh, and hearing all the different thoughts and ideas and trying to, to get them all to come together into like a, you know, a cohesive group. Do they, uh, do they teach you that in engineering? It sounds like a lot of psychology, a lot of interpersonal skills. Do they have, I'm being serious. Do they, do they have classes in, in your engineering school that deal with any of these topics or you just learn this as you go? This is something you definitely learn as you go. <laughs> I did have a psychology class in college as an elective social psychology, if I remember correctly. Uh, maybe some of that has come in handy and I haven't, and I haven't realized it, but you can get all Freudian yeah. on them. <laughs> right. <laughs> I haven't had that experience yet, but <laughs> You'd be like, who I, knows? Think you, I think you have mother issues. I think that's what I'm sensing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, let's let's talk about your childhood. <laughs> <laughs>
You, you do, though. I, I remember a, a, a mentor that I had years ago that talked about being a psychologist. You're a psychologist out here, you know, because these guys that come to you uh, being upset about something, and then you find out it's you know maybe something personal is going on, things like that. And you just <laughs> talk it through, and you get you get the 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 venting out, and then the real yeah that you can get to the to the business problem to it. But yeah, yeah none of that's really taught. That's a real world. Uh, experience type thing or it's just a life experience that's yeah. not really taught in school <laughs> yeah all right can you uh can you talk a little bit about some of the the projects you've been involved in some of the, the more interesting or interesting projects to you that you've been on yeah yeah let me let me go through a few of them probably one of the more interesting ones was one in fort worth texas where we were doing uh, an energy conservation project basically taking the existing processes that this wastewater treatment plant in Fort Worth had and uh, refining them, adding different elements to the processes that were more efficient. For example, uh, co-digestion, adding, adding uh, co-digestion feedstock to existing anaerobic digesters in order to produce more gas, more biogas. So adding a adding you know fats oils and greases that produce great amount of methane um, that can be collected and then burned and turned into electricity and so now you've got something that's making that plant run more efficiently using less electricity on the power grid or doing anoxic zones taking a 100% aerated aeration basin and reducing the aerated footprint by 15%. And now you're doing anoxic zones and you're, that's allowing for nutrient recovery. And that's also allowing there to be much less energy consumption because you are using 20% less air going through the process. So very, very interesting project. I remember that particular one. The, the plant was using roughly $500,000 a month on their electric bill, and they got it reduced. Last I had heard, they had it reduced down to about $200,000 per month. Wow. And I think, they, I think they are aiming to become an electrical provider at some point. I don't think that's happened quite yet, but that is sort of the goal at, at some point. It Go is uh, interesting to see this whole conversion to you know, resource recovery. And, and you know, 20 years ago, you didn't hear much about energy in these projects but you know i've been seeing that too as far as you know the facility i work at and, and facilities across colorado and the nation of how do we create energy or how do we optimize our process to save energy and it's always interesting that you know a five percent ten percent like you say optimization can result in in millions of dollars of savings over a few years and, and you know something you know i think about at home but when you talk about the scale of of the energy used at some of these treatment facilities, it makes a yeah. big, uh, it makes a big difference. Every percent counts, you know? Absolutely. And, and you hit the nail on the head. It's resource recovery these days. It used to be wastewater was a, a nuisance that a city had to, to treat. And it was just something that you had to do. Uh, 
uh, to not pollute the environment. And now we're viewing it much more as this is a resource coming in that can be used to create electricity. All right. Well, I think we're uh, we're at our mid-show segment, and then we'll get into to these three rules that you uh, you have. But let's uh, let's sure. get to the mid-show segment, with, and we'll see if you recognize any of these. The top seven signs uh, you're involved with a bad contractor. So I have compiled uh, the top seven signs, and this can be at home or on on a large job site. So number seven, uh, he continually asks things like, "Does this look level to you?" That's that's one of the signs. <laughs> number six, uh, he does all uh, they do all their measuring using an iPhone app. That's another sign <laughs> he might be hooked up with the wrong contractor. Number five, uh, has to leave the job site for a few days for a court thing. That's a, that's a bad sign. I, I have actually experienced have that, you one. Had that one. Yeah. Yes, not, not me personally, but <laughs> but the contractor, yes. All right, number four, uh, number four sign that you might be involved with the bad contractor. Uh, they ask you if you have a junk drawer around with any tools in it. That's, that's a bad sign. Number three. Agreed. Number three claims faulty concrete is due to requirement to social distance the rebar. That's number three. Uh, number two sign, uh, request upfront deposit in the form of Amazon gift cards. That's a bad sign. That would be a very bad sign, that is yes. A bad, that's a red flag there. <laughs> yes, it is. And the uh, number one thing to tip you off, you might be working with the wrong contractor, uh, won't stop talking about his spud wrench. That's the number one. So those are the signs. <laughs> <laughs> I like those. Yes, I think I'm in full agreement with you that those would be the mark of a very bad contract. All right, good. I'm glad I got. Uh, I'm glad I got your verification. Now let's uh, let's good. stop with the shenanigans and get to uh, get to these three <laughs> rules you have. What are your What are the three rules that that guide you uh, in your in your profession or daily in your duties? Yeah, yeah. So. To me, the three rules as, as a resident engineer, and I, and I can't claim that I have fully uh, created these out of my own head. Uh, I had a very seasoned resident engineer in Texas that I worked under for a number of years that taught me these three rules. And I've sort of modified them a little bit as I've gone along in my career, but uh, this guy knew his stuff. So I, I am always constantly think his name is Ted. I'm always constantly thinking, what would Ted do <laughs> when yeah. certain situations come up? So he, he was the one that, that sort of uh, told me about the three rules to begin with years ago. Rule number one, know the plans and specifications better than anyone else on the job. Now, that is uh, something that is, can be very easy to do if you are involved in the design of that project. So I've been, I've been a resident engineer on a project where I was intimately involved with the design of it. So it was a very nice project, the energy of recovery project I was just telling you about in Fort Worth. I was, uh, we, we pursued the project, we won the project, we designed it, and we executed the construction resident engineering role on that. And I was able to do all, uh, be involved in, in all of that. It's the, the cradle to grave project that I was on. It was over a four-year period. And so um, 
in that instance, I was I was up to speed on exactly what the design was and and the specifications and everything. And I felt great going into it and knew more than the contractor when when the project started. Um, however, oftentimes you don't have that luxury. And so the project that I'm currently on, I was not a designer for. And so I've, I've been having to play catch up on the design and you just got to sit down when you're not the designer, you sit down and you study those design plans and specifications and you talk to your designers, you talk to the experts that put these plans and specifications together. That's rule number one, know the plans and specifications better than anyone else on the job. Rule number two, and this takes a little bit of experience, but know when you need to hold the contractor firm to the plans and specifications. So there are times when it's important that you hold the contractor's feet to the fire on the plans and specifications. Um, that is not a hard, fast rule. You don't always do that. And it takes time to learn not when to do that. And I'll get to that in a second. But an example of holding the, the contractor's feet to the fire, if you will, I'm sure my contractor friends will like hearing that. <laughs> but is, uh, I remember a few years ago, this is, this is not a recent project, but this is when I was actually in welding and I was on a, uh, in, in a plant and we were constructing pressure vessels. And this particular pressure vessel required skip welds. And the skip welds are kind of like a star pattern. You weld one, one weld on one side of a, a, this is a circular vessel, one weld on one side, and then you go to the opposite side, 180 degrees away, and you weld another inch. And you go back and forth, back and forth. And it adds many, many hours to the project because you're doing these short little skip welds. Mm -hmm. And this contractor was absolutely adamant about wanting to weld continuously around it because it would save him so much time doing that. And uh, the plans and specifications were very clear. You had to do these skip welds. You eventually make it continuous, but they had to be these, these skip welds. And uh, I had to prove to him why. And the reason why is because we were dealing with exotic metals that had extremely high tensile strength properties to them. And this vessel was going to be under a great amount of pressure. And so heating, if you do a continuous weld all the way around, you will destroy the metallurgical properties of that metal. And uh, it will become less strong. And uh, once we got beyond that, he understood and did, did the star pattern skip weld that I just described. So that's an example of we have absolutely got to hold to the plans and specifications because you're going to end up with a product that the client is not going to like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so always think of it that way. If I deviate from these plans and specs, is the product not going to be what the client is expecting? Do you find when uh, a contractor in a situation like that, is it usually because a lack of understanding of the engineering side as it was in that case, or is it because timeline issue or a cost issue or i imagine it's all those at some point but what do you, you know what do you see yeah usually it's rooted in a lack of understand an engineering or scientific understanding of why something is done and the reason why they're doing it and i would do this if i was a contractor is they're trying to save schedule or maybe save money and and they they have great ideas and someone uh, has come up with an idea to 
to what they what they think of as still producing the same product, but more efficiently, um, more easily, with less money. And so it's, it's kind of that all rolled into one. It's maybe a lack of understanding of the reason why it has to be done this way. And, and the, the reason why it is because they've, they've come up with a way that might on the surface appear to be better, but ultimately it's, it's not. So you got to know when they're, uh, they think they're being creative and, and attempting to optimize and, and you got to, you got to balance that with the, the scientific necessity of, of following the plans directly. Exactly. That, that hits the nail on the head. Yes. Yeah, and then rule number three. And rule number three is does take the most experience to, to really get good at, and that is when to leave the plans and specifications in the trailer and get the job done. <laughs> so in other words, when can we bend on our plans and specifications and still produce a product that is expected by the client and will work properly and will still have a similar lifespan. So on this current project, I have over a hundred drawings and over a thousand pages of specifications and they're not perfect. <laughs> and spoiler alert, there are no perfect plans and specifications on any project. <laughs> as engineers, we're not paid to produce that. And as owners, you would not want to pay the, the fee it would take to produce a perfect set of plans and specifications. Yeah. So um, but even that, e e uh, even if there, I'm not talking. I'm not even talking errors and omissions. I'm talking about still holding the design intent, but deviating from the way that it's going to be accomplished. That's where this rule number three comes in: is you're still providing the same quality, the same good product, and the same idea that the owner wants, that the engineer wants, but you're going to construct it in a different way than what is laid out. And contractors have expertise, have vast expertise that engineers don't, and vice versa. Engineers have a lot of expertise that contractors don't. And so here it is, kind of going back as the role of resident engineer, you're playing that mediator and, and un trying to understand where the contractor is coming from and still trying to understand where your own team, your engineering team is coming from, and then coming to a common solution. And an example of this, a quick example I'll share on this current project is we have an existing 48-inch pipeline that we needed to, to put a connection into. The way that we had it designed was by cutting out a length of that existing 48-inch pipe, adding this T. And on the surface, that seems like a, a, a great thing to do, and if, it, uh, if it's a, a perfect world or, or maybe different circumstances that would have been just fine. But in our case, when we excavated and we found that existing pipe and we took measurements of it, we found out that it was oval. It was an egg-shaped pipe. And so instead of risking getting an oval-shaped tee to match our unique oval in the field, instead of doing that, we went ahead and we just did a weld-on branch. And we didn't have to mess with worrying about the egg shapedness of the pipe and we didn't have to worry about a, a number of things doing it this way it would have been very difficult doing it any other way i think and so yeah. that's where you bend you know oh the, the contractors come up with a really good idea on this 
um, and I think it's better than what the, the plans and specifications are saying. And we hadn't thought of it this way. And we, I mean, we hadn't thought of it partially because we hadn't dug up the pipe when we were doing the plans. And so yeah. that's when you, that's when you bend. So those are the three rules. Know, know the plans and specs better than anyone else, anyone else on the job. Know when to hold the contractor firm to the plans and specifications. And then know when to leave the plans and specifications in the trailer and get the job done. Clay, one question uh, regarding rule three is how do you make that judgment call where, where you, you want to bend to get the best project and, and to, to get the desired result, but you don't want to have the contractor think you're too bendable or lose respect? How do you have a combat that? Yeah, that's a great question. Excellent question. And it hits on something that I really do want to drive home on rule number three. So as a resident engineer, you are playing a tightrope. You don't want to be too bendable or, or too much of a pushover, and yet you don't want to be a, a full-on number two, rule number two person where you're rigid and you have to play by the letter of the law exactly how it's written in the plans and specs 100% of the time. So there's a middle ground that I like to call team player. <laughs> and... Uh, as a team player, you're able to recognize that the engineer has expertise, but the contractor has expertise too. And there are situations when both of those expertises can come together and provide a solution that's even better than what's presented in the plans and specifications. You've got to think about it as, does the idea that the contractor presents you that's a change to the plans and specifications does it change the design intent of the project or does it lower the life expectancy of the element that's being discussed? Generally, it's never going to change the design intent of the project. I shouldn't say never, but it, it, it likely won't change the design intent. You're not going to have a contractor that comes to you and says, I know we're designing this biological phosphorus removal reactor and I've got an idea for a ChemP reactor, chemical phosphorus removal reactor. And so I say we go ahead and change the process from BioP to ChemP and that's going to be much better. That's generally not what a contractor is going to do. That, that sounds like a rule two right there. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's rule four. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you know, red flag contractor has wants to change the design intent. No, it's generally he he or she wants to install the element differently than how it's laid out in the plan. And so if you if it's a no to those two questions, then you have to start involving other people. And this is extremely important on rule number three. I can't iterate this enough. If you're going to make changes to the plans and specifications, you have to involve the engineer, the experts that designed it, as well, and even more importantly, the owner. The owner purchased these plans and specifications and are expecting it, and you are bound by contract to provide what's in those plans and specifications. If you are going to make changes to them, the owner has to be involved and has to agree to those plans and specs. The engineer has to agree to those plans and specs, the, the new revised plans and specs. And then that must be documented. The agreement on that must be documented. And usually that's documented through an RFI. Uh, that's a request for information or a field order. 
to ensure that the change is captured and that everyone is agreeable to it. So rule number three, it's a great rule. It takes a lot of experience and it also takes the input of the design team and the owner. Everyone must agree if you're going to do rule number three. Yeah, it sounds like it goes back to to what you first mentioned about communication, the importance of communication of, of getting, you know, the owner saying, here's what I want, the designer saying, here's what I here's what I designed and the builder saying, here's what I can build and getting them all three together to, to work on a solution yeah. that's good for the project. <laughs> You'll often hear me say, let's all get on the same page. <laughs> and I, I, I say that time and again, we've got to inform the client that we're making this change and to see if they're okay with it. If we're finally all on the same page. Let's document it, get the agreement memorialized and then build it that way and move on. Yeah, it strikes me as uh, interesting that you know this brings to mind a lot of a lot of a lot of management type issues of, of when to when to parry and when to thrust, you know, when to to crack down and when to ease up. And I think that's a, a constant uh, constant question in management and in probably more activities throughout the water and wastewater industry is just when to let up and when to when to drill down. And so uh, it's interesting that. You know, how universal this this three rule system you have is yeah it really it really does apply outside the construction project where these rules fall apart is when I'm arguing with my wife they don't you know, <laughs> this, the system breaks yeah. down there yeah don't ever use <laughs> rule number two with your wife <laughs> <laughs> just take, take your lumps and look at the long game there that is exactly right <laughs> use rule number three very liberally. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're getting a construction uh, inspector, but also a little marriage counseling here. This is a this hey. show's taking on everything. A one-stop shop. I'm the central <laughs> communicator here. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for sharing those. I think those are those are great rules. I'm glad you uh, took the time out of your your busy. Uh, day on the site there and shared them with us. So thanks a lot, Clay. Absolutely. My pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with you, Blair. All right. Are you ready for the uh, final end of show quiz now? Oh, man. Yeah, I saw that on the on the program and uh, I'm a little nervous. Are you a little nervous? Admit. Yeah. All right. Well, this will test, uh, test your knowledge of construction. Uh, let's see how you do. All right. Number one. Uh, we all remember the construction worker in the village people, but which which of these was not in the village people band? A, a policeman, B, a lumberjack, or C, a cowboy? Oh, man. Uh, policeman, well, lumberjack, cowboy. One of them wasn't in the village people. So I, I have heard of the village people, and I, I think I know some of their songs. So the YMCA? My, my, yeah, the y, exactly. YMCA. That's the one that comes to mind. Um, I would guess maybe a lumberjack. Oh, you are oh, correct. Got you that right. All right. All right. All right. Good. Number two. Okay. Uh, if you're familiar with the cartoon Bob the Builder at all, he has a catchphrase. Is Bob the Builder's catchphrase A, can we fix it? B, sounds like a change order. <laughs> C, thrilled with the build. Or D, this is not a drill. What is Bob the Builder's catchphrase? 
Oh man, so I've heard of Bob the Builder, goodness, but I know nothing about Bob the Builder. So <laughs> if if I were to guess, thrilled with the build? Oh, that seems like that should be. I made that one up, but that would be a better one. His catchphrase wow. is actually, "Can we fix it?" And then all his uh, all his peeps holler back, "Yes, we can." So I can tell uh, I can tell you haven't been tuned into PBS Kids lately. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have not, but uh, I should have. I should have related Bob the Builder to kids, and can we fix it? Probably would make more sense to to a, a kid than thrilled with the build. But I do like thrilled with the build. You should contact yeah, PBS and maybe I'll sell that to a uh, to a construction <laughs> company or something. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Intellectual property. Yeah. Right. All right. Number three. You can go two for three here. Uh, this one's a more serious question. Which of these projects took the longest to build? A, Coors Field, B, DIA, C, Red Rocks, or D, the Brown Palace Hotel? Which of these uh, projects, these landmarks in Colorado, took the longest to build? Coors Field, DIA, Red Rocks, or Brown Palace Hotel? So I have heard... <laughs> endless stories about the construction of DIA and including the fact that they have aliens stored in the basement of yes, DIA. Yes, that is true. Yeah. That's true. Yes, that is true. So building those alien rooms and, you know, all of the laboratory scientific uh, gadgets that are in those rooms, uh, my guess would be DIA. I think Red Rocks, the story I got in Red Rocks was the city wouldn't allow Red Rocks to be built, but then like some of the big city officials were out of town on some conference and some guy decided to run out there and, and uh, run some dynamite and blow out Red Rocks or something. And then, no. that's how, and then they said, oh, well, it's already been done. So we might as well proceed with that. That's uh, um, that's asking for forgiveness instead of permission there. That's getting exactly. stuff done. Yeah. Uh, know a little bit about Coors Field. I, I think that was standard. The Brown Palace I know was built in the 1800s and 1889 maybe or something along those lines. So that could have taken a while. So my, my first guess is DIA. My second would be the Brown Palace, but I'm going to go with DIA. Can you go with DIA? Yep. It is a uh, it is a good guess. There was construction delays, but from what I found, DIA was six years. Red Rocks is the answer with twelve years to build oh, Red Rocks. That's what I like, which stumps me because the rocks are already there. I don't yeah. know. There's not a lot of building. I think they worked slow back then. That was. I don't <laughs> think they were. They didn't have a good inspector on the scene to to keep. Hey. They must have had a horrible resident engineer. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> because that's right. it's just steps. I know. I know. That's all. Steps in, a, in an amphitheater. That's about it. There's probably more to it than that. But holy cow, I never would have guessed Red Rocks. But yeah, Coors Field was uh, about two and a half years. Brown Palace, they did that in four years. And uh, okay. CIA was about six years. I think the baggage system went on oh. a lot longer than that but uh yeah the baggage system yeah it was destroying bags and what they completely abandoned it at the end I think. yeah yeah <laughs> all right well you got one out of three that's not bad hopefully uh <laughs> if you come back you can up your average there but good work on that one 
Well, you've got to have me back now. I've got to redeem myself on the on the end of show quiz. <laughs> All right. It's a deal, Clay. Uh, thanks right. again for coming on. And thanks to our listeners for uh, listening to another episode. If you like uh, the Streaming Water Podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have feedback or ideas on, on topics you'd like to hear about on Streaming Water, you can get a hold of me at streamingwateratmail.com. But uh, that wraps up our show today. Thanks again to Clay, and we will see you next time on the Streaming Water Podcast. Thank you, Blair.